efficiency is something that can be good, but not necessarily is efficiency always something that's good. In fact, you know, when I go to see the doctor, I don't mind if my doctor runs a little bit late and he's a little behind schedule because that tells me that he's being thorough with his patients. And I know that when my doctor visits with me that I want him to be thorough. I don't want to walk out of there like I have with some doctor's appointments and say, well, I could have just gone on WebMD and found out the same information that you just told me. Or when I go to a car mechanic, I want to make sure that the, the car mechanic is thorough. I don't want to leave there with a cracked axle or something like that and him to tell me, well, you're fine, get out of here, and, and then all of a sudden I get in a horrible accident. I, I want him to be thorough. Or the airplane mechanic, before I, I get on the plane, you know, if there's any airplane delay that I'm okay with, it's when they come on the speaker and they say, there was a mechanical issue with the plane, so we had to take it out of service. At that point, I'm, I'm thankful for that, that delay. I'm not sitting there going, well, this isn't very efficient. You should have just thrown us on the plane, and, you know, we could have all said a prayer together as we took off. Or the guy that's cooking my food, I want him to be thorough when he cooks my food. I don't, I don't want to be served raw food when I go out to a restaurant, and, unless it's you know, sushi. Uh, the guy that's cooking my food, I want him to be thorough when he washes his hands after he uses the bathroom, right? I mean, we see those signs up in the bathroom that says all employees must what? Wash their hands. And we pray and, and hope that they all abide by that, especially the ones that are handling our food when we go out to eat. And I think all of us would agree that we're thankful that we have a senior pastor at our church here who is very thorough, when it comes to preparation for the word. I mean, there are a lot of ways to be more efficient in preparing a sermon than Pastor Mike is week in and week out, but that doesn't mean, in fact, I, I guarantee you that that doesn't mean that those sermons are better. For a pastor to go online and buy a sermon or for a pastor just to, to take an easy kind of topical overview of a passage rather than to dig in like he does and spend hours in the text like he does to make sure that he feeds us adequately and well week after week. So we see sometimes efficiency, though it can be good, is not always the best choice for us. There are times that we would much rather be thorough than efficient. Well, when it comes to our obedience to the Lord, we should always prefer thoroughness over efficiency. That's a lesson that David would have to learn a very hard way in our text tonight. Second Samuel chapter six, let's pick up together in verse one, read through verse four. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. The ark. Oh yeah, the ark, right? The ark. Where was the last time that we saw the ark? Where has it been this whole time? Well, verse 3 in our text, right when it opens up, tells us that it was in the house of Abinadab. Where did we last leave it off? All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So 20 years prior to this, thereabout, we had that incident. You remember where Saul brought out the ark of the Lord and the Philistines took the ark of the Lord captive. 
And the Philistines brought it back. And then some bad things started to happen to the Philistines. And the Philistines said, we don't want this thing anymore. And the Philistines put the, the ark on a cart. And they put it on a cart with two uh, oxen who were not weaned yet. And they set the oxen loose. And, and they took off towards Israel. So they took that as a sign from God. And they let them go. Well, the, the ark ended up with the men of Beth Shemesh at the time. But the men of Beth Shemesh didn't handle the ark in the way that God had prescribed in the Old Testament for the ark to be handled. They were looking at it. They were gazing at it, potentially even gazing into the inside of the ark. But they should have rushed to cover the ark and drape the ark, which is what the Old Testament law demanded. And so God struck dead some of the men there of Beth Shemesh. And so at that point, they're done with it as well. Not only the Philistines, but they were done with it too. And so they call these men from Kiriath-Jerim to come and get the ark, and they bring it to the house of Abinadab which is where it had existed and remained all the way throughout everything else that had happened from that point until the point that we're at tonight in 2 Samuel chapter 6. That's where the ark has been. But David now, reigning over the house of Israel, says he wants the ark. Remember the significance of the ark for Israel. It was there between the wings of the cherubim that the presence of the Lord would appear before the people. We read about that in Leviticus 16 verse 2. It was the ark that symbolized God's presence with Israel. And under Saul's leadership, it had been neglected. It had been left at the house of Abinadab, which really is a perfect picture for the nature of Saul's reign over Israel. Not caring about this valuable asset to the people of Israel, the place where God's presence would appear before the people of Israel. But again, David was not like Saul. He was committed to leading God's people in God's way. And so he set out to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And not only was that the right move for him before his relationship with the Lord, but it was also the right move for the people to bring the ark of the covenant. Think about it, back to Israel in the wake of, of everything that had happened, not just with Saul and Ishbosheth, but then last week with the Philistines and then the Jebusites. This would have been a huge win for the people of Israel to see the ark return to Jerusalem. And so David went out again to show, hey, I'm not like Saul. This is something that is good, that's right for us to have. We need to honor it. We need to put it into the tent where it belongs. Let's go get the ark. But see, in going to retrieve the ark, David, just like the men of Beth Shemesh, made a grave error in the process. David allows his zeal to cloud his judgment. In Numbers chapter 4, instructions, as I referred to earlier, were given to the Israelites for how they were to transport the ark. God was very specific that this was one of the holiest of holy of the the pieces of furniture that was in the tabernacle. And just like the rest of the pieces of furniture, this one had specific instructions in how it was to be carried. In fact, it had rings on the side of it that were for poles to be threaded through. And they were long poles so that the the priests and specifically the Kohathites, a specific band of the Levitical priesthood, could go and pick up the ark on its poles and carry it with them wherever they went. Numbers 4, 15. And when Aaron and his sons, here's the specific instructions. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out after that, the sons of Koath shall come to carry these, including the ark. But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Koath are to carry. The only other instructions provided were they weren't to touch the ark. 
In fact, nowhere, there's no provision anywhere in the instructions given to the priest to do what David does here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. What is that? David takes the cart, the ark, and just like the Philistines had done, he puts it on top of this cart and drags it behind oxen. God was specific in his instructions on how the ark was to be transported. It was to be carried. The only other time that we find the ark on a cart and drugged by oxen was when the Philistines, people who were ignorant of the instructions of the Lord, chose to do that to get it away from them as fast as they possibly could. And here David is committing the same error that the Philistines committed, but the difference is David knew better. The sons there, of, of the, the priests there, they knew better. Ahio and Uzzah knew better. The Israelites knew better. And so as David sets out to retrieve the ark, a thing that in concept was good, it doesn't have a very good start. It doesn't have a very good beginning to this event. And it was about to get worse. Pick up in verse 5. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. You know, without a contextual understanding of the ark of the covenant, this is one of the more, more puzzling events in all of First and Second Samuel. And even with the contextual understanding of the ark, this is still a, a troubling, it's a jolting encounter as we read it and it's supposed to be because as we read this we want to say well it seems like Uzo was doing a noble thing it seems like he was doing a, a good thing that he was zealous for the purity of, of the ark and that he was just trying to help he didn't want to see the ark defiled or damaged by falling off the cart again this wouldn't have been an issue at all had the ark been transported the way that it was supposed to be transported. Had David been obedient to the Lord, had these priests been obedient to the Lord's instructions for how the ark was to be transported in the first place, this wouldn't have happened. But nonetheless, here we are, and here's Uzzah thinking he was doing a good thing, but that's not how God saw this. Notice the aggressive nature of God's response. It says, the anger of the Lord the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And so this prohibition that God gave his people, you shouldn't touch any of the holy things. Okay, it wasn't like giving somebody a prohibition, hey, don't get too close to the edge of the Grand Canyon, because if you do, you'll suffer the consequences. If somebody gets too close to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and they fall over the edge of the Grand Canyon and die, that's the, the cause and effect, right? Well, the cause and effect of the death of Uzzah is the cause of the unholiness of Uzzah coming into contact with the total holiness of something that had been consecrated and sanctified by the presence of God. And so this was a, a direct result of God's anger. He caused this. He killed. He executed. He, in our text, the way it's worded in the ESV, struck down Uzzah. Why? Why? Again, it, it, it tempts even understanding all that. It's still, there's something about us that grates against this because we think he was trying to do something good. He was trying to keep the ark from falling off of the car and, and crashing into the ground. 
Well, the answer to why has everything to do with this concept of God's holiness. If I can, because I think he just nails it on the head and I don't want to steal from him, I'm going to read a quote from from R.C. Sproul on this very issue. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, says, Uzzah believed that mud would desecrate the ark, but mud is just dirt and water obeying God. Mud is not evil. God's law was not meant to keep the ark pure from the earth, but from the dirty touch of a human hand. Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than the dirt. God said no. And that's a fascinating concept. Even if the ark had fallen into the the mud and the filth of, of the ground, of the earth, it still would have been cleaner than for Uzzah to reach out and take hold of it, to steady it, to keep it from falling off the, the cart. Because the issue was not the physical dirt, but the spiritual dirt. The issue was the, the unholiness. The issue was the, the, the brashness. The issue was the arrogance. The issue was the presumption of Uzzah to think that he could reach out with his hand and touch something wherein the the very presence of God would regularly take up residence. The God who, Scripture says, has eyes that are too pure to even look upon evil. And so Uzzah reaches out, reaches out and touches it. And it's that, that contact with human flesh. That's what would defile the ark. That's what would pollute it. That's what was completely unacceptable to God. And so that's why he responds with force and with fury and with anger over this event. You see, for us, God's holiness must always be on our minds always be on our minds. Uzzah was walking alongside the ark of God. Should he not have been keenly aware of his own sinfulness and on guard against anything that might pollute or defile its holiness? He's a priest of Israel. This man is not ignorant. You know, for us, the apostle Paul, I think, makes a similar argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, dealing with our our purity he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6.15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He says, never. The failure to respect God's holiness, it didn't begin with Uzzah reaching out and grabbing the ark. It, it began when David gave the order to bring the ark and gave the order to get the cart and and the priests loaded the ark onto the cart. That's where the initial abuse of God's holiness began, the neglect of a full and total obedience to God. David had a a great passion and a zeal. In fact, in the text, he's out in front of the the ark with 30,000 people around him and they're celebrating and they're rejoicing and they're playing music and they're singing songs to God. They're worshiping. And yet his zeal had been divorced from a thorough obedience. And the zeal of Uzzah that made him reach out and, and grab the ark had been so blind that he had forgotten the necessity of thorough obedience. Men, we need to learn a lesson from this tragic event, and that is that zeal without obedience is a recipe for disaster. Or put this way, for point number one tonight is this. We need to consciously couple our zeal with a thorough obedience. Consciously couple your zeal with a thorough obedience. 
Why, why consciously? Because that's where David fell short. Pleasing the Lord involves a conscious attention to detail on a daily basis. See, God wants, he desires, he, he's commanded that our worship of him be buttressed by a focused obedience to him. I don't have any doubt that David never imagined that loading the ark on the cart would lead to the death of one of his men. Never in his wildest dreams could he have thought that. I'm sure David didn't even give it a second thought, and for that matter, neither, neither did the, the priests who were accompanying the procession. But that's precisely the problem. This little compromise that they didn't give any thought to led to grave consequences for both David and for Uzzah. We can sing the loudest. We can pray the longest. We can answer every question in small group, have the most marked up Bible in this room. But if we're not striving for obedience in every area of our life, if we're cutting corners in our obedience, if we're looking for efficiency when it comes to obedience and not thoroughness when it comes to obedience, then none of that other stuff is gonna matter. And we're in grave danger of committing the same presumptive sin that we find in David and Uzzah. You might think that's strong language to say that none of that's going to matter, but let me go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. When Samuel confronted Saul over his act of disobedience for not wiping out all the Amalekites, and Saul says, I did, and Samuel says, well, what's the sound of bleeding of, of the sheep that I hear? And Samuel culminates things with this charge Samuel said in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And so let's just think about for just a moment here, a few areas in our lives where thorough obedience often needs a tune-up for us as men. First, think about the area of, of your speech, the words that come from your mouth. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 is written from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor, but it's wise for all of us to, to heed these words as well. Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech. Man, if, if your every word was recorded throughout the week, would you be able to say that I'm setting other believers an example in speech? speech, that I'm being thoroughly obedient to the commands of God, that I should let no unedifying or unwholesome talk come out of my mouth? Am I following after the commands in Proverbs about how I should use my words? Is, is my tongue more of a weapon than it is a, 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 an aid, and a source of encouragement? Are we thorough in our obedience regarding our, our speech? How about our marriage? Are we thorough in obedience with our marriages? Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, they're familiar, but let's listen to them again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Here's a sobering thought for us tonight, gentlemen, you who are married. Your wife should be holier as a result of being married, married to you than she, is, she was before she was married to you. That's that concept there of presenting her as, as holy, washed by the water of the word. 
Yes, God is the one who sanctifies, absolutely. But men, you should have a sanctifying presence in the life of your wife and not in the sense of like, it's a sanctifying experience to live with you, if you know what I mean. You should be actively encouraging her. You should be building her up. She should be more Christ-like as a result of your leadership than if she weren't married to you. About the area of entertainment. Are we being thoroughly obedient in the area of entertainment? 1 Peter 4 verse 3. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Those things that you're entertained by, gentlemen, are, do, they, do they fall into that list? Or are we being thoroughly obedient in what we're taking in Following on that, it flows naturally. How about our purity? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Man, there are so many areas of our lives we could keep going where compromise can creep in where we can be tempted to, to cut corners in our pursuit of holiness. And we have to be on guard. Again, I'm sure David thought nothing of putting the Ark of the Covenant onto this cart other than it would have been a more efficient way to get it back to Jerusalem in a, in a faster manner than the, the priest carrying it. I'm sure Uzzah thought nothing of that impulse that fired in his brain to reach out and steady the Ark before it fell off the, the cart. But that's just it. They weren't conscious about being thoroughly obedient in everything to God's commands, to God's will. David's response to this event is recorded for us in verses eight through 10. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah. The Lord broke out against Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Notice the parallel between his response here and the response of the men in, in Beth Shemesh who said, we can't, we can't take this anymore. Get it out of here. David says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Why? Because he's afraid. Why? Because he was wrong, because he was sinful. Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Gittite is a, a, the, the, a person from Gath, one of the Philistine territories, would have been a Gittite. However, it's likely that this man was a priest because of David's decision to house the ark there. It seems like he was a Levitical priest living in Gath at the time. His name was Obed-Edom. But again, much like the men of, of Beth Shemesh, David responded to this with fear. He was, in fact, not just fearful, but this weird, strange mixture of being angry at God and afraid of him at the same time. What should David's response have been to the death of Uzzah? Well, confession and repentance. It should have been a wake-up call for the king. He should have realized that it was own, his own negligence that led to this. 
He should have mourned over Uzzah's death and used it as an opportunity to, to remind his fellow Israelites of the importance of zeal coupled with obedience. But that's not what he does at all. Instead, he's got this anger, this anger that may have either been directed at God or directed at himself. It's unclear specifically in the text, but he's, he's angry as a result of this. It's probably a mixture of both of those two things. And he's fearful. And this fear is not this, this healthy fear that we should have, but this terror of God. And so he compounds the consequences of his sins by reacting rather than repenting. And he leaves the ark. He leaves the ark with Obed-Edom and he returns back to Jerusalem. I mean, this was a, a blow to David. This was a blow to his leadership. This was a blow to him in the eyes of the Israelites. This was a blow to him personally and his, his relationship with the Lord. And when he's confronted with his sin and when he sees the consequences of his sin, he's, he's slow to recognize it. Which is, as we'll see as 2 Samuel continues, one of the, the downfalls, one of the weaknesses of David is he is slow to see his sin. Later on, he's going to need somebody to come and, and very directly tell him, here's your sin. The Lord was disciplining Israel and he was disciplining David, but David didn't respond well. He reacts in, in prideful defiance. Point number two for us tonight, we need to learn from that and we need to be men who will humble ourselves under the corrective hand of God's discipline. You need to humble yourself under the corrective hand of God's discipline. Maybe you've been like David. I know I have. Have you ever done something that's completely 100% your fault and then gotten frustrated and angry that you've got no one to blame but yourself? Maybe you wake up in the morning or the middle of the night and you trip over the shoe that you left on the floor on the night before and you're just looking for somebody else to blame. And the fact that there's nobody else there but your own stupidity just makes you more angry and more frustrated. I think in some ways that's what we see with David here. It's foolishness unbridled. And sometimes that can be us with our sin. We know we're wrong. We know we're in sin. And yet when we experience the hand of God's discipline in our life, rather than being quick to repent, we just, we're like that child who goes and slams the door in his room and just, heaps consequence after consequence after consequence on himself. So how can we avoid that? How can we humble ourselves under the corrective hand of God's discipline? Well, number one, consider whether trials, opposition, and suffering might be the discipline of the Lord at work in your life. This is something that we've talked about before, even in this series on 2 Samuel. But don't think all the time that, that suffering or trials are unjust. Consider whether or not this might be God's corrective hand of discipline at work in your life. Second, the way that we can humble ourselves is give thanks to God for people in your life who will confront you over sin. And if you don't have those people, find those people. If you don't have friends who love you enough to say, you know what, brother, you're in sin in this, then you don't have good enough friends. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Man, you need friends in your life who are faithful to wound you. Give thanks for those things because that's God and his corrective hand of discipline at work in your life. Third, way you can remain humble is, is to be approachable. That's hard for us. That's something that I struggle with. 
be approachable so that somebody who comes up to you is not, you know, having to walk on eggshells when they're around you. Open yourself up. Invite correction from your brothers. Proverbs 15, 31 through 33. Proverbs 15, 31 through 33. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. But whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. Humility comes before honor. So are are you approachable? Are you inviting reproof in your life? Are you encouraging other brothers to to have that voice, to speak that into your life? Are you willing to listen to them and, and to heed what they have to say? Fourth, give consideration to every confrontation, whether you feel like initially it's warranted or not. Every, every confrontation, listen to what is being said and take time before you respond. Take time before you react. Take a, a day and think about those things. Ask, is there any truth to it? Be like David in Psalm 139. God, examine my heart. See if there be any way that is not pleasing to you. Give consideration to every confrontation. Fifth, train yourself to doubt your default. Train yourself to doubt your default. What are our defaults? Oftentimes it's, it's justification, it's anger, it's offense, it's rationalization, it's comparison. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Train yourself to doubt your default. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs 18, 17, this is in normally with communication with others, but I think we need to even internalize this and, and think about it with our own flesh as well. 18, 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Be willing to examine your own inclination to respond, your own inclination, your own default there. You know, David doesn't set a great example for us here, but it's certainly one that we can learn from, learn from his failure. Learn to humble ourselves under the hand of God's discipline. Well, eventually word gets to David that this guy, Obed-Edom, that he left the ark with, you know, I hope this guy's in in heaven because I'd love to talk to him about what those three months were like. But he's got the blessing of the Lord upon his house. And David kind of says, okay, well, maybe it's time to go back and get the ark again. So David returns. But notice the differences this time around. Pick up in verse 12. It was told David the king, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So that's similar. Rejoicing, celebrating, right? Verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord, okay, now they're carrying it, had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. The parallel account of this where we get some more insight, 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 3 through 15. 1 Chronicles 15, 3 through 15. David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place. Then David summoned the priests, the priests Zadok and Abiathar and the Levites, Uriel, Asiah, and other names there. 
Verse 12, and David said to them, you are the heads of the fathers of the houses of the Levites. So he's, he's bringing them and he says to them, consecrate yourself. Notice how attentive he is to their own holiness here. In verse 13, because you did not carry it the first time. See, David understands. He's well aware of what went wrong. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 15, and the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. David got it. He saw the error that he had committed. He made the correction. He doesn't take any chances this time. He's gonna make sure that he, he treats the ark and more importantly, the God of the ark with the reverence and respect that he was due it's a beautiful picture, really, of the, the fruit of obedience. There's some question here when it says that when they had gone six steps, they sacrificed a, a cow and a fattened uh, calf there. And there's some who think that, that that was every six steps along the way. That's possible. It is possible. It would have been an enormous undertaking. But when you consider the fact that David is genuinely repentant, and when you consider the fact that Uzzah was killed for touching the ark, and how he's having the priests consecrate themselves and make it such a, a big deal about doing this right the second time around. It's possible that David orchestrated that, that every six steps he had a, a priest and a, an altar set up willing and ready. And, and every time the ark passed by, those things, th those animals were sacrificed as the ark went by. That's possible. Or it's just simply possible maybe that six steps into this journey, David made the, the, the point to stop everybody and to inaugurate it with this sacrifice before they continued. Either way, da David got it. He made the correction. It says, and, and David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a, a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Dancing David. I'm not gonna dance before you tonight. Sorry, guys. Somebody asked me earlier, they said, hey, maybe we can get the pastor to start dancing on stage. It's not going to happen. But David was, was hopping around in half circles in front of, that, that's what this kind of dancing was. It's, that's what the, the word means. It means twirling. So he's, he's springing back and forth and in half circles to the rhythm of the music and everything else that's being played as it's going on. And he's wearing an ephod. Now the ephod was the, the garment of the priest. And so there's some Question as to what is David doing wearing an ephod? Because he wasn't a priest, he was the king. Well, it's possible, and, and Psalm 110 may allude to the fact that David would have been considered a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not a Levitical priest. So David nowhere goes into the temple and offers sacrifices or burnt offerings himself. That would have been wrong. That would have transgressed God's design, and he would have been sinful for doing those things. But David here puts on the, the garment of the, the priest. Some have said, well, he was the king of the kingdom of priests. I think that's, that's too general. I think there, there is something there to, to David identifying as a, a priest here. And he's dancing, wearing the linen ephod, and he's out there celebrating. We don't have time to go into it right now. If you have time in your groups, maybe open this way. Read 1 Chronicles 16, 7 through 36. 1 Chronicles 16, 7 through 36. This is the song that accompanied this occasion. So you're wondering, well, what were they singing? What were they saying? This is what they were saying. 1 Chronicles 16, 7 through 36. I wish we could read it. Again, we don't have time to go through it right now. But this is what David's doing. Verse 20 in our text, 2 Samuel 6, 20. 
David returned to bless his household. So they come into Jerusalem and, and everybody's excited except for Michael. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, Saul will just not go away. Came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Man, she is bold. See, Michael has seen David coming in, dancing before the Lord, leaping and dancing. And it says in the text, she despised him in her heart. Wow. Again, this is Saul's daughter. That one that, he, that, that David had Abner bring back to him. Which at this point, he's probably going, man, I should have left her with Saul. And she sees her husband the king of Israel, in all-out worship, exalting the return of the ark and all that that would mean for Israel. And her response is that she is embarrassed, that she is humiliated because she doesn't understand, because she had no foundation. She, I think what we're seeing here, reveals that she did not have a relationship with God the way that David had a relationship with God and the other Israelites had a relationship with God. She was on the outside looking in and like so much of Christianity to the world around us, for her too to watch Israel and to watch David coming back in celebrating this cart pulling this box with the angels on top, the cherubim on top. She's sitting there going, what are you doing? You're acting like a fool. And it's true, kings didn't typically dance. Some have argued that that was even just a role reserved for the women. But this was no average situation. This was a monumental situation for Israel. One worthy of celebrating. And David was leading his people by worshiping God. And she's sitting there humiliated and embarrassed because it's bad PR for her. This is the Kardashian of ancient Israel. She's disgusted at what she feels is behavior unbecoming the king of Israel. But David instead wouldn't be deterred. Verse 21, David said to Michael, Notice the, the jab that he makes here. It was before the Lord, you know, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. She shuts her mouth at that point. And we learn in the text that she remains childless for the rest of her life. That's significant. Of all of David's wives, it would make sense for the son, or, or excuse me, for the daughter of Saul and for David, the current king of Israel, for their offspring to be the next king after David. But God doesn't operate based on our expectations, does he? But it's this zeal for God that we see from David, this good, this right zeal for God that we see from David. And when we have that zeal, and, and David does this and he can't help himself, he's out front and he's rejoicing and he's celebrating and he's dancing and he's singing because the ark of the Lord is coming back. When we have that same passion for the Lord, it's going to exude from everything that we have. We're not going to be able to contain it. We're not going to be able to hide it. And we're not going to care what the world that doesn't know our God thinks about it or cares about it. Because there's always going to be people that are going to pull us aside. 
whether it's Michael here with David or whether it's Peter with Jesus when he rebukes him for saying that he was going to be crucified. There's going to be people who don't understand when we are zealously committed to the will of God and finding joy in submitting to the will of God. But as men, point number three tonight, we need to forsake the acclaim of men for the approval of God. We need to be rejoicing. We need to be metaphorically out in front, dancing in front of the ark of God, men. We need to be joyful men, celebrating. People need to look at us and see that we love being a believer, love being a follower of Christ. If you live as a man on fire for Christ, this world around you, they're not gonna understand it. They're gonna be puzzled. They're gonna be offended. And again, you don't have to put on an ephod and dance, thank God, but you can have an underlying sustaining joy that they don't understand, that gets you through difficulties. It can be the, the values that you champion, that the world considers evil. It can be a stance that you take against what the world considers good, that the Bible and God would say is actually evil. It can be a habit of public prayer. It can be a habit of giving God glory. It can be the music that you listen to in a car. It can be your refusal to compromise. These are the things that the world is going to look at and they're going to say, I don't get it. I don't understand. You're acting like a fool. And you'll say with David, great. Buckle up. I'm going to get even more foolish in your eyes. So men, what does that look like? Number one, resolve to care more about pleasing God than pleasing man. Resolve. Make that commitment. See, that's what I want. That's what I long for. I want, God, I want to please you more than I care about what man thinks of me. Because I fear you more than I fear man. Second, know, recognize that the world is against you and that doesn't mean that you're wrong. It doesn't mean that you're wrong as long as what you are convicted by, as long as what you are standing on, as long as what you are celebrating, as long as what you are rejoicing in is God's word. Third, maintain your witness, but also maintain your devotion to the Lord. Yes, you want to be thought of well by outsiders, but not at the expense of your devotion to the Lord. If they think you're a fool and you're an idiot and they write you off, let them write you off. Because in the end, you will be found honoring the Lord, obedient to the Lord, pleasing to the Lord. And that leads me to the last one under this point. Look to the reward that this world can't offer you. Look to the reward that this world can't offer you. How foolish it would have been of David to go, you know what, you're right. How foolish it would have been of David to look at Michael and care more about her esteem than the esteem of God. And to, to, to sacrifice his integrity as a man of God in order to gain the favor of this woman who had no clue anything about his God. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26 talks about this kind of living. And it looks back to Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Man, it must be like that. Who cares about the acclaim of this world? We want the approval of God. This whole encounter with the ark taught David this valuable, but yes, very costly lesson of the importance of our zeal for God, our passion for God being inseparably coupled to a thorough commitment to obeying God. And David eventually humbled himself under the discipline of the Lord and responded in repentance. Efficiency can, yes, sometimes be a good thing but not at the cost of our thorough obedience to God. So let's make sure, men, tonight and moving forward that we learn these lessons from David and resolve to be diligent to pursue the Lord with a zeal that manifests itself through thorough obedience. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for this text, so thankful for the encouragement that we find in a man like David who, though it took him a little bit of time, came to his senses and repented and bore fruit in keeping with repentance and submitted himself in obedience to you, God. Lord, we want to be like David and we want to be willing to make a fool of ourselves in the eyes of this world in order to celebrate you, to worship you, to glorify you, to make it known far and wide that we are yours. Lord, give us a greater fear of you than a fear of man. God, give us a greater love of you than a love of men a greater love for your approval than the approval of this world, a greater desire to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, when we breathe our last and stand before you than to hear an attaboy from the people around this world that have no clue of anything, of who you are, of what you've done for them. God, I pray that we would live lives that would lead others to look at us with their mouths wide open and wonder what in the world uh, is, is going on that would lead, lead us to have the outlook and the joy and the satisfaction and the hope that we have. God, lead us into conversations because of that, that we would be able to share the gospel with people and see more and more come to realize that great hope and that great joy. God, thank you for being patient with us when we fail in that. Thank you for being patient with us when we are not thorough in our obedience. Thank you for the grace that you extend to us. Thank you for the cross. But Lord, like the Apostle Paul said in Romans 6, should we continue to sin that grace may abound, may it never be. May we leave here and be men of thorough obedience, zealous and passionate for you. In Christ's name, amen.